Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from A&E Network's President of Programming, Rob Shearnow, about navigating the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and the opportunities he sees for the US cabler in 2021. Plus Big Light Productions founder Frank Spotnitz and Luxfeed Chief Executive Luca Bernabe about their new Aidan Turner starring Leonardo da Vinci drama. Rob Shearnow is President of Programming at US cable outfit A&E Networks with oversight of channels including A&E, History, Lifetime and Crime and Investigation. He spoke with Clive Whittingham about the seismic events of the past 12 months, navigating the COVID-19 pandemic and production shutdown, the opportunities and challenges he sees for his company in 2021 as streaming increasingly dominates discussions and the need for greater representation in front of and behind the camera. As best you can, how was 2020 uh, in your role at A&E? Well, I, you know, I hate to sort of jump into it, you know, the the, the obvious Dickens quote, but it, it re- kind of was the best of times, worst of times in our industry. Uh, you know, not for our company, because I actually think the, the worst of times part for our company, it was it, like everyone else, it was an incredibly difficult year. And, and I think everyone was working harder and grinding more. And it felt like what... Uh, uh, you know, took three three paces this year, took 10, you know, just to get to the same distance, you know, but, you know, in terms of the best of times for us, and, and it's really one of the, the great silver linings is we actually had a very good year as a portfolio and as a company. Um, and it was an incredibly galvanizing moment for us as, a, as all of our brands and our teams came together to sort of figure out how we were going to navigate this together and to, to do it well. Um, we actually really did come out of it very well. We had a good year last year. They were having a very good year this year. So, so um, while it was a struggle and wasn't easy, and I think everyone felt like they were working harder, the results for us were quite positive and, and again, somewhat inspiring. How do you go, and in a really short period of time, from running television channels in the way you did before to running them remotely almost? I mean, it was certainly a shock to the system um, for everybody. But I think one of the things we did immediately that I think was the tonic that really made everything easier was just a massive amount of communication. Um, We all on all levels of our company and externally and internally, we were constantly communicating with each other, with our internal partners, with our external partners to figure out how we were going to move forward. And it happened again, Paul, Paul Buccieri really uh, sort of jumped into this where we, I was having a daily call with him uh, immediately, as was all of our executive team. And I started doing that with my senior leadership on all levels. And I think that cascaded down. So I think that level of really fluid communication uh, was critically important and really helped, you know, know, it's odd to say, but I think communication got a lot better um, because we were doing it so often and there was far less misinformation or sort of everyone was always, it was kind of rowing in the same direction from the minute we we were working from home because there was just that daily, constant, very honest and direct communication. I've called it in interviews before the culture of presenteeism, the idea that you have to be at your desk at nine o'clock or you're skiving almost and we work in big offices. Do you see that culture of presenteeism coming back in the same way? Or do you think that's gone? Or will it be a hybrid model for for any moving forwards? How do you see it? I I definitely see it as a, uh, you know, some form of hybrid. Um, And I think while there has been, again, amazing challenges to this remote working and and this idea that we all are locked, chained to our desks and, and constantly meeting, 
there have been enormous benefits that I think were quite unexpected from my perspective. I think there's been much more of an openness and I hate to use the word, but democratization of our meetings where I think just having different voices, you know, we we now have the ability to have more voices participating more regularly and it's really been a benefit. And again, we're a multinational cross-country team um, and those walls sort of fell away. And now our, you know, LA office is in the same meetings as the New York office and London, you know, everyone's much, much more fluid in their, their ability to communicate. So that, that's been a real positive. I do find myself at the end of a day where there have been 10 Zooms thinking, wait a minute, where did, where did, where did my humanity go? I didn't eat today, or actually I never forget to eat. So that's, that's BS, but I, I always eat, but like sometimes I'm eating while I'm Zooming off camera. And, uh, but uh, I think going forward, I think it'll be interesting to see where it lands. Cause I think it really will land in a better hybrid place. And I think we're, the way we used to work chained to a, a commuter schedule and a, and a set of assumptions about office are definitely gone, you know, never to be completely replicated. And I think that will be a positive thing, too. You see the, the way the television uh, industry worked with a very well-populated events calendar. Um, you could almost be at an event every week, pitching, acquiring conferences, panel discussions. Do you see that coming back in the same way? Because I think there were already questions about whether we needed to be flying as often as we were to pitch shows and the environmental impact the industry was having. How do you see that on the other side of this? Well, I think, you know, I I wish I had a a definitive answer, but I actually think it's going to cut both ways in a really interesting way, because I think clearly, like I just had an offsite for a hundred plus people and it was amazing. There Again, they were all over the country and it was incredibly easy to assemble. We had an incredible guest speaker who we never would have gotten had we had to coordinate flying everyone in. So I do think that there'll be more fluidity in how those things happen. And some of it will lend itself better to the virtual experience. The flip side of that coin is I predict that everyone will want to travel as soon as they're able. So I think that need for physical community is going to be incredibly great. And that like everyone's looking forward to the next fill in the blank where the get to see everyone in person. So I think there will be this return to community. And I think a lot of those events will be very well populated and active. But I, I do feel like there'll be a little more selectivity in what people do and and how, you know, you know, in their own planning. It's like, oh, do we need to fly in 50 people from out of state to do this? Or do we need to ask that? Or is it more efficient to have some sort of hybrid or virtual experience? Obviously, um, you'll have had a plan February time last year for what was going to air on your channel's when and tent poles that you could put a lot of marketing into and things you were looking forward to promoting. I presume a lot of that didn't happen in the way that you thought it would, productions going on hold or falling over altogether. Talk to me a little bit about how you kept your content pipeline going through 2020. Well, I, I we had a great benefit of having, you know, I feel like we have very clearly defined brands and genre buckets and areas of excellence. And because of that, I think we had set in motion a lot of long-range planning that wasn't dramatically interrupted, if I'm being honest. Um, That's one of the reasons I think we had a good year last year and we're having a good year this year is that we never actually completely shut down. And we had sort of, I wouldn't say stockpile, but, you know, a a surplus of premier content that where others did not because we knew what we were going to be doing fairly far in advance. And when I look at sort of the key genres that, that we do across our brands, whether it be thriller movies on Lifetime or Crime and Justice series like First 48 on A&E or, you know, The Unexplained on History. These are shows that we sort of ordered in mass quantities. We knew we had sort of plotted out almost a 24-month course for some of the 
this stuff. So it wasn't dramatically interrupted. And and I think our our production partners and and our internal production was able to sort of bob and weave to where production was uh, able to happen really deftly and, and keep the and keep the pipeline flowing. And again, that was very inspiring to re- actually understand and realize that we we did not shut down. We were not frozen like a lot of our uh, competitors had to be based on the kind of shows we do. Will there be um, a lag at some point in the future where this has a knock-on effect? You know, like you said, you plan pretty far in advance, that's fine. But will you? Will we notice, I don't know, end of 2021 or middle of 2022, there'll be a bit where stuff was meant to be delivering then, but but that's when the, uh, the production problems will bite? Not for us. I mean, because again, I think we were really being very deliberate and careful about our use of our premieres and, you know, really checkerboarding things in the most deliberate and strategic way. Um, so we could guarantee a, a flow of, of premieres. That was one of the things that Paul and the, our executive team were stressing when it really first hit. It's like, okay, how do we keep our powder dry and how do we plan things out so we can have our lights on for as long as possible? And again, I think I was quite impressed and inspired by how even, even our movie production partners, which I think you think of, oh, scripted movies, that must have really been hindered or shut down. But no, actually, many of them, many of our partners and a lot of our movies were able to stay in production throughout by creating pods of production in areas where they were able to film. Same with our long-form documentaries in which there are some pretty major reenactments. They would create pods. We, we had a pod in, in the north of England, actually, that was going for months and months and months making stuff. And it was actually quite wonderful because the team had already been assembled and they just kind of stayed up there. And I think that's what's been interesting and kind of inspiring to watch is how much pivoting adaptability optionality we've sort of had to sort of build into our plans. Um, but so far, I do want to knock wood on that. It's, it's been working really nicely. I heard it described as a great time for factual and unscripted because obviously it's uh, cheaper, quicker to turn around, smaller crews than drama, which looks particularly challenged. You have both scripted and unscripted on your networks. Do you buy into this golden time for, for factual? Is are you leaning more towards factual than drama? Well, I mean, you know, um, we certainly do both. And, and it's, been, it, you know, particularly on the, on the A&E and history side, we are factual brands, you know, primarily. Um, and again, as I mentioned, I think the lifetime scripted model is, is really movie, movie and mini based, which hasn't shut down. I think it's very different. It's a very different production model when you're talking about something like Game of Thrones or Peaky Blinders, where you have hundreds, if not thousands of crew members that need to be somewhere working together together over many, many months. And again, a Lifetime movie is on a very different production timeline, very different crew size that we have been able to sort of navigate it. That, that said, there's certainly been major advantage to the unscripted teams because a lot of them have just not never shut down and never needed to. There's that, you know, they were able to produce safely. And, you know, we're definitely seeing a lot of that all over the business, but particularly us who, who are almost wholly populated on, on those two brands with unscripted. One of your big unscripted scripted shows for A&E was obviously Live PD, which which we're going to have to touch upon now. I think everybody's familiar with the, the story of, of what happened with, with Live PD. When you look back on that, any particular lessons that you've you've taken from that, that whole experience? Look, there was an enormous pivot in culture and we are, you know, A&E is a, a, a brand that has always been on the front line of culture and I think we're still grappling with how to sort of handle shows about policing and show, social justice and it's still a part of our DNA. Again, I think when you have a hit show like that, it's hard to plan for what would happen if the hit show isn't there anymore from a business perspective. 
But from a insights perspective, I think, you know, the team has really embraced leaning into the things that have always made A&E strong. Some of that is crime and investigation. We are, we are still in that space, um, but doing it in a way that really feels right for the moment. And I think that that's something that is always ongoing with us is evaluating how to do shows in the most responsible way um, that speak to audiences. And uh, yeah, it was certainly not an easy experience, but I think that again, A&E being the strong brand it is came out of it as well as we could. And again, are leaning into the areas of frontline documentary that have always been at the core of what we do. What does A&E look like as a channel going through 2021? Because obviously Live PD was, it was a huge show. It was the, the show that defined the network. It had huge blocks on Fridays and Saturday primetime. Having lost that, difficult to, to reinvent a channel like that. It's like how, what will that channel look like and how are you going about that task through this year? Well, I mean, again, one of the silver linings of the year is, you know, Live PD was a show, um, but A&E is an incredibly strong network. In fact, we're still a top 20 network, even, you know, that, you know, people forget that even without with the loss of our number one show, we've still managed to stay in the, t- in the top 20 um, and are actually creeping up in the ranker right now and, and knocking on the door of the top 15, if not the top 10 in the in the U.S. market. And that's because we are a many-pillared house. A&E has, still has a lot of crime and justice in First 48, one of our ongoing franchises that's a global hit. And we have several others in that vein. But then we also have, again, what we call our, our front row documentary show that have been a pillar of the brand for the last 20 years, Intervention, Hoarders, Leah Remini, Scientology, which is no longer on the air, but we're still developing in, in that area. And then Biography. Biography has been a very, very rich vein for us since the beginning of the brand and continues to do so. And some of our biggest swings coming up are in the biography space, where we're leaning into the secret origins of hip hop and other really big ticket biographies. We have a partnership with the WWE, um, which is, again, uh, what we think is a very popular but you know, right, right on target play for our audience. So AE really has several different areas of development that have been really fruitful and continue to do so. And I think one of the one of the myths I wanted to dispel is that it was was a one show channel because I think we have a whole channel uh, and several nights filled with original content. That's another thing to remark about AE is AE, you know, the lights are very on and blazing and doing quite well right now. And really none of it is off net. A lot of the US market channels are are still driven by either sports rights or sitcom reruns. And if you turn on our channel any any night of the week, you're going to see original A&E programming, whether it's a show like Court Cam and I Survived a Crime or First 48, as I mentioned, or Intervention in Hoarders. This is a robust slate of really leading franchises that we still have and we are looking to build upon. Where do you see yourselves in this ridiculously competitive uh, environment with the everybody launching a, a streamer with a, with a plus on the end? Obviously, Discovery, a big, a traditionally a big ride of yours uh, has come to market with a, with a streamer. Uh, there's Peacock, there's HBO Max. You don't need me to, to go through them all. Just ridiculously competitive streaming environment. You're more a cable net company and we hear about cord cutting and uh, advertising challenges. Where do you see yourself? How do you see yourself competing in what is a ridiculously competitive US market at the moment? We're clearly experiencing you know, a lot of great shifts in our industry. One of the things that I think gives us an advantage is we we are so clear about what what our brands are and where our areas of excellence are and really sticking to those. I think what we're seeing across the industry is the building of a lot of mega stores and there is a sort of a emphasis being put on you know quantity over definition. And I think one of the things.
things that that audiences and viewers want anywhere is curation and clarity. And I do think that's the the thing we're doing better now than we ever have is really knowing who we are, knowing what our audiences want, and really super serving them. And I think that you know, candidly, we're we're partnered with a lot of those SVOD companies who who want our content too, and that's a good thing. Um, we, we do feel like our our mission is to know what the audience wants, super serve our consumers in the things we do best. And I do think there's this kind of moment where you look at some of these companies and wonder, huh, what do they even stand? Who are they? What are they? They're, they're just kind of the everything store. And I think that's good for them. And that works for their business model. But I think we're very happy, A, with our, we, we do have a thriving linear business, which is not going away. I mean, it's certainly being challenged, but I think we, we still believe in that business. And again, in this moment, I think that gives us an advantage because everyone's just playing to the universe. And when you're playing to the universe, I think uh, it becomes a little difficult to hit the target. And I think, you know, we we really have um, specific targets on each brands and within our shows. And I think in, in some, you know, some real way that gives us an advantage. You know, someone once told me that the hardest thing you can tell a creative is do anything, you know, and I think that's a little bit where some of some of the big brands are, where it's like, okay, we're, we're everything and anything. So just, so just come to us. And I think that creates confusion, uh, you know, for the consumer and for, and for the creator, because I think the creators want to know who they're serving and, and what their, you know, what their target is. So do you see yourselves continuing to be the business that you are now, like with, with the linear cable channels? And like you say, your content appearing on different SVOD platforms, we're not going to see A and E plus coming down the uh, down the pipes to challenge these uh, to challenge all the rest of these streamers. Our singular goal is to have the most desired brands and content wherever they be. I, I don't rule out anything. I think it is unlikely that 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 is a path we would follow. But I think our goal as a company is to is to keep strengthening our brands and our individual shows so that they're desired where you know on whatever platform we choose to put them on. And I think that's again one of the advantages we have right now is being lazy focus still on the creation of that content and really having the customer, the specific customer in mind, as opposed to Wall Street or, you know, some abstract numbers that people are trying to hit. We're really very targeted on uh, giving the people what they want, because that's still how we're measured. Uh, We're really measured on how successful our shows is, how much they're consumed, how much they're desired, as opposed to just an abstract entity where you're really just trying to manipulate your larger number. And, and, And again, in a Way that's given us a better focus um, as creative teams. Sixty-four thousand dollar question, of course, and nobody knows the correct answer. But as as we look ahead to the sort of the living room of twenty twenty two and and beyond, there's a lot of theories about how many streamers people will actually be able to sustain, and whether some of them will go away, whether they'll merge, whether cable is in trouble with cord cutting and skinny bundles and all of this. Where do you see the living room of twenty twenty two? Is everyone going to have fifteen streamers and a cable sub- subscription? That doesn't feel that likely to, to me, but I don't know. Do you agree? Well, unfortunately, I'm not a business guru or my stock portfolio would be looking much healthier than it is. And uh, But, I, you know, I, I do think that the same truths will be true 10 years from now as they were 10 years ago, which is that content rules. So whoever has the content that people want is going to win. Whoever doesn't is going to lose. You know, it sounds really simple and it is and it isn't. But I think that, that at the end of the day, whatever platform or, you know, entity or brand or cochlear implant 
has the content that people want, they're going to win. And I do feel like we've always seen content lead and pivot. And I mean, specific content lead and pivot these trends. So again, I really wish I knew too where it's going to end up. And I don't. All I know is that whoever really is able to solve that part of the puzzle is the winner. One of the big trends that came out of last year, other than obviously the horrors and the pandemic and everything, it was a real genuine move. It felt this time towards better diversity and representation on screen and off screen in television. It's been talked about in the 10 years that I've been covering the industry constantly without ever really changing, possibly people playing lip service to it. Feels a little bit different this time. Do you agree with that, first of all? And, and then second of all, can you talk to me about what A&E are doing um, in this area to, to be a better broadcaster? Yeah, I think the moment is real and the change is real. I don't think, I, you know, I really do think this is a pivot point as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion, both culturally in our industry and in our company. And we're taking it uh, as seriously as we've ever taken anything and really looking to bring greater diversity through all levels of our company, both on camera, off camera, internally and externally. And it's happening. It's already happening. I will nod to Lifetime. Lifetime's always kind of been a leader in this anyway. We have an incredibly, we have a really nicely diverse workforce, but also I think that the, the content itself has always played to a very broad audience. Um, which is one of the great strengths of that brand. And I think we are looking to lean into those areas for history and A&E really aggressively and bring different voices and different you know, makers to those brands. And again, it's already happened both in front of the camera and off camera. Are there, are there specific, um, I don't know, moves, drives, initiatives that you can, that you can point to to say we, we, there's going to be a certain percentage of our senior management that's, that's going to be from a BAME background or, or or anything like that, just to to, to move A and E in that direction. Yeah, well, I mean, the the you know, we really thought about this really seriously, and I get you know, again, I don't think I'm giving any way away a state secrets, but actually, uh, you know, there is a diversity goal with built into our actual financial goals as senior leaders, which is a completely new um, and very you know that again, if you're looking to get everyone's attention, you sort of you attach a goal to someone's paycheck. So again, I don't I want I don't want to talk about the specifics, but there are there are specific goals. And, and expectations about how we're going to diversify our workforce. And I, I again, that's very palpable. And then when we're looking at, you know, just specific content choices, they're already being made where we're really trying to speak with a broader voice to different audiences across, whether it be really serious subjects like, you know, the Tulsa Massacre, which is being, you know, produced by us by uh, Russell Westbrook and, and Stanley Nelson, um, which really delves into a very, very difficult period of African-American history on history to something really more celebratory like the secret origins of hip hop on A&E, which is, again, really a, a way to naturally grow the A&E brand, bio, you know, it sort of comes out of the biography tradition in a more contemporary and a more inclusive way. should also be noted that that's not just, you know, one of the things we're, we're doing in both of those instances is it's not just the subject matter, it's the makers making those shows also are diverse run companies and, and diverse voices actually behind the camera actually making, making the stuff. So it's really, again, top to bottom approach that is a, is one of the great priorities of our company. What other trends in content do you do you see? I mean, presumably nobody wants to watch pandemic programming, but what's your best guess for, for content trends moving forward? Uh, you know, I'm always wary of um, people who try and predict what the mood is going to be or what the what, what the content reaction to a, a, a cultural mood may, may look like. That said, I think, you know, I, I do think there's sort of a authenticity, you know, again, we've always trafficked in sort of very authentic 
authentic formats. That's really been the hallmark of all of our brands where, you know, and, and we're very proud of that. It's generally when we do unscripted, it's real people in the real world. And, you know, we're continuing to do that. And again, I think that's an advantage for us in this moment. But I would also just n- n- nod to sincerity um, because I think you can, you know, I, I think sincerity as opposed to irony. And I think there's a level at which when you faced a pi- pandemic and all of the global crisis um, we've had and, and so much really serious uh, stress and difficulty in, in culture and society that the, you know, irony has gone a little bit out of fashion and you find, uh, you know, those ironic snarky voices feel, uh, you know, out of a little out of tune more so than they would in the past. Um, but again, that's something that we've always embraced. I think our, our, our brands tend to be sincere. Um, Lifetime is not an ironic brand. It really, it, it really comes, comes at you with a sort of an emotional directness and honesty. And I think that's uh, what we're going to continue to do. And again, I think that's, that, that's a general area where I think uh, culture may pivot away from irony and towards sincerity. What's the biggest challenge facing you in your job as we move through the new year? Well, I think that the demand for content is incredibly high right now for, you know, everyone is trying to sort of stock their shelves. And so there is enormous competition for us just sort of keeping ahead of that curve, but also controlling our own impulses. Um, because I think that that's, um, that's one of the real risks of this moment is that everyone just wants to get their show on. Oh, and we're going to go straight to 10 episodes and not pilot and all of that. And I think that's all, there's an energy to that and an excitement. But I think what that results in sometimes is some shows that could have been better, um, some wasted opportunities. And I'm not talking about us, I'm talking about in general, where it was like, wow, I wish that 10 hour was edited down to a really great two hour, or I wish they had piloted that format because there was really something there, but this really didn't work as is. And I think really controlling the impulse to sort of just get your stuff on and really bake the bread and sort of figure out where the balance is, because we want to keep our assembly line healthy and running. Um, but we also want to make sure that we're keeping up quality control and knowing that uh, people are going to get a satisfying experience when they when they get our shows. Rob Share now from A&E Networks, speaking with Clive Whittingham. Leonardo is the story of the Italian Renaissance polymath featuring Paul Dark's Aidan Turner in the lead role with The Good Doctor's Freddie Highmore starring beside him. The series was created by Big Light Productions' chief executive Frank Spotnix and Sherlock Steve Thompson, made with Luxveed for Rai Fiction, France Television and RTVE, with Sony Pictures Television handling worldwide distribution. Spotnitz and Luxfeed chief executive Luca Bernabe spoke to Michael Picard about their new take on the enigmatic character and how they managed to bring such a large-scale production through the pandemic at a time when Italy was at the centre of the European COVID-19 crisis. I mean, Frank, do you want to just give us um, a, an overview of, of the production? I, you know, this has been a couple of years in the making. And how did you kind of come to the idea of, of dramatising the story of Leonardo? And, and what was your way into the story creatively? Well, it was Luca's idea. Luca wanted to do it. And to be honest, I was, I, I was um, wary of doing this. I thought it would be really challenging for many reasons, not least of which I find stories about artists really hard to make dramatic because the stakes are will you make your piece of art or not you know it's not obvious why that's great drama and you know I've, I've watched a lot of movies about artists and so on so I was really reluctant to take on the challenge initially uh, and then Luca came back I don't know a year later and said hey I've got this guy Steve Thompson who's interested in doing it and I was like oh, all right maybe if Steve's doing it <laughs> I'll do it with him. And that's really what happened. And, um, but I have to say it was as hard as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> 
it's really hard, but we we ultimately, you know, found a way into his character that I found very moving because you read, we read everything, but it doesn't tell you what he was like. It doesn't tell you what his personality was like or why he did the things that he did. You know, the books don't answer those questions. And so we had to come up with those answers ourselves. And here's a guy who was abandoned by his parents. He was an illegitimate child. You know, his mother gave him up to his father, who gave him up to his parents, who lost himself in his work, who was as obsessive as anybody you can possibly imagine. This is the ultimate workaholic. Mm -hmm. And um, this idea of how much of your life do you lose to work? You know, how do you how do you make room for other people, for love, for life? And ultimately, you know, Leonardo, it's about finding a family, making a family. Uh, so all of that, you know, I found very moving and was sort of um, our way into to the story. And, and Luca, um, you know, obviously Leonardo needs no introduction. What was it for you personally that you, you found you wanted to explore with this character and, and, you know, bring him to the screen in this way? To summarize Leonardo, first of all, you, you approach the complexity of the man, uh, engineer, painters, uh, architect, uh, and we were saying, uh, okay, finally, how can you give back the complexity of this man not being banal, not being documentary. So to me, Leonardo was the heart of the, the peculiar moment, uh, which is called Renaissance, that could happen because there was uh, Florence was ruled by a great family called the Medici, and they were giving 50% of their earnings. And they were bankers. So this is, I mean, bankers. Think about it, to make beauty. So they were not just making money. They were making money, but they were giving beauty to their city and to the world. Uh, because still now, Florence is one of the most visited cities in the world because the beauty has been financed by the Medici. So they were generous. They were not keeping the money just for themselves. And beauty, it, it's important because uh, make uh, better living for, for men. So Loretto was part of it. He was financed even by the Medici family and he was always seeking uh, for something perfect, for perfection. That was a strange part of his life because uh, uh, not so many people know that Gioconda has been not finished. He made a mistake uh, making uh, the Last Supper because uh, he wanted to change uh, the technique uh, so if you use a fresco, you can you can change. Then he was using a mix a technique in order to keep changing while he was painting. And so the result was that now we are losing the last supper in Milan. Uh, so he made a big mistake because his desperate will to make something perfect. So that was his demon no, inside him. No? Maybe we were thinking to Frank, because he was abandoned by his father, he was not recognized as a decent human being. He was always wanted to show to the world, hey, you know, I'm not a piece of garbage. I'm someone important. Oh, maybe because he was interested in so many stuff. He was always making scratches and stuff of ants, of horses, of faces. So he was too curious to keep going and, and do something else, no? That's why he was uh, uh, making uh, uh, flying machines, submarines, and uh, so he was never stopping and his mind could never stop. That's why he was, he was sleeping 20 minutes every two hours, so 120 minutes per day. So two hours per day just 
not enough for a human being, but he was so curious, so over-curious. So still his life is full of complexity, but these two men, him and Steve, they have these three wonderful dramaturgical ideas uh, in order to reveal something about Leonardo, so to open the mystery, because what has been done up to now, some, some, sometimes really creepy. Uh, I mean, uh, the black part of Leonardo's life, because uh, he was doing... Uh, autopsy because he was so curious not because he was insane because he was so curious he wanted to understand what was going on in the body of an horse of a woman so there are these three wonderful ideas uh, first of all, the modern mystery. So, Freddy Aymon investigating in, in the life of Leonardo, trying to understand if he, he had killed someone. This is fictional, but this is give you the possibility of going through his soul. And that part, that, that frame, it's not a boring part of frame, so I want to do see the story, let me see the story, get rid of the frame. Instead, it's interesting because it helps you to understand what was going on in, in this mind, which is co-complex. Then the other beautiful idea of having Caterina da Cremona, his muse, which was always the wonderful part of him because he was discussing with him about beauty, about art, about relationship, about a relationship of an artist, which, you know, the ego of an artist is so strong. It has to be if you, if you want to be an artist. But she was always putting him in discussion. So this is really intriguing. And then there are these other wonderful ideas of having almost a masterpiece every episode. So you can understand uh, the character through what he has done. And some of them, uh, are not just Gioconda or La Sape, it was like the horses, it was, it was, there was Duke of Milan gave him the commission to, to make the greatest and largest uh, statues ever made in the world. So there was the father of the Duke of Milan riding the horse with the sword, etc. Et this piece of art has never been made. But we tell the story of all this struggle to make it possible and uh, to go towards uh, the impossible, making the biggest horse ever made on the on the earth and making it in uh, in iron, let's say. So they were linking all this all his life through his mattress piece in order to make it uh, uh, in a chronological way. So that was an, inter an interesting and smart way of uh, making uh, and, and telling the, the life of uh, a, a mysterious man. I, I guess it's notable that you were working with the alliance of, of Rye and, and France Television on the project. What was that like for you as the producers to uh, work with those broadcasters in what is quite a new system? And, and you know, how did you find that having, I guess, several uh, bosses perhaps or, or lots of notes from different people competing to have the show that they wanted how, how did you find that for you on the ground making the show I've done several co-productions here since I've been in Europe and I have the gray hair to prove it because they're always challenging but I have to say I think the way Lux and Rye managed this co-production was the best experience I've had because it largely came through Rye and Lux Steve and I were, were largely protected there were a few times when we 
we spoke directly with some of the other partners, but largely it was like whatever other input they were getting, it was all filtered and consolidated into one one set of uh, notes. So it was actually, in terms of the co-production aspect of it, it's always hard doing co-productions, don't get me wrong. They're always hard, but this was probably the best um, experience that I've had. Yeah, well, we have to quote Tini Andreata, the, the time now said of Netflix Italy, and at that time was head of uh, Drama Tribe with Francesco Nardella. And they've been really, they're two, first of all, they're two really cultivated manager executives. So they were really aware of what they were doing. They were really studying a lot. So that has been easier for us because uh, they were not just talking about drama. They were talking about really the artistic point of view. So we have been making with them hundred, really hundred hours of meeting on the scripts. So these are really elaborate scripts. And then, for example, at the end of the show, so you know, you have the uh, editor cut, director cut, then producer cut. After the, the director cut, there was some really, really specific not coming from the French partner. So it was quite tricky because we, it was almost finished. Uh, with Frank, we were producing our cut. And so what happened, even due to COVID, we hired uh, an editor in America, uh, Michelle Tesoro, and we asked her to bring us a fresh uh, eye. And she really re-edited a lot, and she helped us to make uh, even a complete new take on music. Uh, we asked to the composer, John Pazano, to make a new score, which was something more modern, not the classical score for a previous piece. And was making uh, what is good at uh, really modern music uh, orchestrated sometimes in a contemporary way or sometimes a more classical way. So the contribute of all our partners has been managed in order to take the best from everyone. And, and I mean, you've obviously worked together on um, on the Medici series before, so yeah. you're no strangers. I mean, just looking at 2,000 hours of, of filming, 50 locations, 20,000 square meter back lot, is that, is that correct? I mean, how would you describe this project compared to, you know, the Medici in terms of scale and, and the challenge of creating a story around this mythical kind of character of Leonardo? Well, I think it was a bigger project than Medici to begin with. But then COVID, you know, just threw a level of complexity and risk and danger in, into it that you know nobody saw coming. And, and, I, and Luke is much better qualified to talk about that aspect than I am. But I do want to point out one other aspect of this show is the art. You know, it's easy as a viewer to not appreciate you know how many versions of each piece of art you have to do and you're not shooting them in sequence and if the art isn't convincing and right the whole show falls apart we had to create a lot of art you know that was leonardo-esque but not leonardo so that was like a huge cliff we could have fallen off of and i don't think we did but it was really really hard so um that's part that i think uh, may not be obvious how difficult that was but that was extraordinarily difficult but, i did notice um in the first episode i mean in the first scene we see him going through hundreds of pieces of paper all with individual sketches on and you know i guess i notice you know having been on sets and things i, I kind of do notice how much time that that would have taken someone to do all these sketches and i, I assume they're not uh, photocopies of lots of different things you know it's um it's quite stunning some of the detail you know productions go to these days so i imagine that was the same on leonardo it was and and lux found this studio north of rome 
Rome, where they are specialists in art from this period, and they restore paintings and and, stuff, and, and we use them. A lot of those artists to create the art uh, to make sure it was it was accurate, true to period, and Leonardo. And the backlot is so big because we were supposed to go and shoot in Milan, but unfortunately, it wouldn't be possible to do it because we decided on the, when we we started to have a bubble, not to allow anyone, uh, which was not tested on set. So we decided to close the crew between a studio and backlot. So we had to build Milan in, in exteriors, I mean, uh, in this huge backlot. So we doubled our construction, but it was, at the end was more efficient and, more, and safer for us than going around finding other location close to Rome or whatever, because uh, we had to keep really safe the crewman, especially the actor, which was not wearing the mask. At that time, it, it was even more difficult because there was not really well-established safety COVID uh, measure. So uh, at the end, we decided to build it, and we were building it during the shutdown for, for COVID. That's how we restarted. That's how wow, we were being the first one to restart shooting the 15th of June. We had a problem. I mean, Freddy Anno has to fly back in uh, in Canada in order to shoot Good Doctor. So, I mean, pressure from Sony was quite big. I gather that the show launched in on Rye this week. So what, what's been the reaction so far and, and how do you think people overseas will, will look forward to seeing the show? But the reaction was huge. I mean, because uh, uh, almost 30% share, 7 million viewers, which is, I mean, uh, this is talking about not, not we are not talking about uh, something easy, uh, a detective story or doctors, medicals. From it, it's talking about art, complexity of the man. It's talking about Renaissance. So it was not given for granted. I mean, so we were quite surprised because you know very well. In the morning at ten o'clock in Italy, at ten o'clock we know the ratings, and it's a it's a death or life sentence. And when you know it, I mean, we were like, wow, <laughs> is it possible? Because that this kind of uh, this kind of ratings, it's it's uh, it's dreams. I mean, especially in these days, I mean, this kind of the, the ratings are not existing anymore in television. So this is uh, to me, it, it was not even. I mean, yeah, we are proud as users and as a production company, but even I, I'm I'm proud for for people because if you give something intelligent, inspired, beautiful, well done, where there is a lot of thinking behind it, you can catch people. You can catch even a really. I mean, it, it was full. There was a huge quantity of young audience, which usually they don't see television. So that was really interesting. I mean, the family was joined together to see a television event. So this is important. This is important for all the public television, for all the big broadcasters. Uh, it's still possible to get back the family a seat on, uh, on a couch to watch television together. Frank Spotnitz and Luca Bernabe speaking to Michael Picard about Leonardo, which is already on air in Italy and debuts on Amazon Prime Video in the UK tomorrow. That's all for this episode, but there'll be more from the podcast next week. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 